0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Sports Council Podcast. I am your host Matt and I am here alongside Vivek for this episode of the show. The first round of the 2022 NBA playoffs is complete. We review all the results and look ahead to the conference semifinals. Plus, with the first games between the Bucks and Celtics and Warriors and Grizzlies already being played today, we give you our thoughts on how the game went and what it means for the rest of their series. Finally. It is yet another disappointing season end for both the Brooklyn Nets and Utah Jazz. We discuss exactly what went wrong for these two teams and whether it's time to make a change. Today is May 1st, 2022, and this is the 60th episode of the show. Wow, I forgot that it was episode
1: 60. Wow, but... We've really come a long way with this podcast. I mean, we started this thing four years ago, in a (laughs) library room, just you and me, (laughs) and our friends sat recording, and we've made it to 60 episodes, so cheers to that, man. Cheers to
0: that, indeed, and it's only fitting that episode 60, we bring back the dynamic duo of us two, the ones who were here from episode one, and we're here for this episode on this uh, Sunday night, so... We're just going to get straight into it right here. It's the NBA playoffs. The first round is over. Now we're on to the conference semifinals. Two games were played this Sunday, the first of which was an exciting matchup between both the Warriors and the Grizzlies, the third seed versus the second seed. And it was just, uh, the hype was real. It was to be expected. And the Warriors won by one point, 117-116. The biggest storylines of this uh, game Draymond Green was ejected in the first half after uh, he accumulated two flagrant fouls on the same play against Brandon Clark when he went up to contest his shot. Curry, uh, Clay Thompson, Gary Payton all had three fouls by the end of the first half. They were in foul trouble for the majority of the game. Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. had 33 and 34 points apiece with 10 three-pointers combined between the two of them but ultimately thanks to Jordan Poole with a playoff career high 31 points the Memphis uh wait the Golden State Warriors defeated the Memphis Grizzlies and the Refs 117-116 take a 1-0 series lead Vivek um you want to give
1: some takeaways on game 1 Yeah sure let me go ahead and get right into this the refs were absolutely terrible. I do not know what the Zebras were doing with this game, but they definitely played around with the results, and they they tried to fix it. I'm not saying, you know, broadly, <laughs> yes. that the NBA itself is tampering with the games, but it truly felt that a lot of calls were not going the Warriors' way, and obviously that isn't to be expected. Like, you know you want to be biases, unbiased as much as possible, but when it comes to officiating a fair game, I feel like that's not what we got on the court, and... When it came to things like Brooks... Brooks definitely... Uh, when he took the charge from Steph Curry... That's a big one, yeah. Um, he definitely moved his foot. You know, that was one thing. Uh, they called that an offensive foul. Um, but in reality, Brooks did shift around his weight. And if you do that when you're trying to set a screen... Uh, to try to take the flop... Uh, obviously, that would be a defensive foul. So that's one thing. Then the other issue that I had was... Um, when the ball went out of bounds... I think they ruled, it went off Clark. Uh, this is around the end of the fourth. Like I think there was like six or seven seconds left in the fourth. Um, they they just went to a jump ball. But I think from the replay, it was pretty clear. That I think it was off Brooks. It yeah. didn't go off the words. It was definitely off Brooks. Yeah, I think it was off Brooks. Yeah, not Clark. It was off Brooks. But yeah, the issue with that was, I mean, I think there was some NBA rule that got changed recently that I wasn't aware of until now. That uh, What happens is that if both... Coaches don't have a coaching challenge. Then they just jump ball uh, from the center of the court, which I think is kind of dumb. <laughs> because if you have the tape available, you know it's kind. Of, you should be reviewing it, uh, especially if it's in the moment. Is pivotal is that right there, right? Because I think the word should have had possession to begin with, and then obviously the main takeaway, um, the main talking point that everyone's been. Going off about is this Draymond Green ejection. And, you know, he did grab Clark's jersey, Mm -hmm. but a flagrant one versus a flagrant two, those both have very different effects on the whole game. And to be kind of that loose and fast with just throwing the flagrant two in a situation like that, I think it was a bit overblown. But uh, that's pretty much just parroting what everyone else has kind of said. There's not really much that. I need to add on to that. But Matt, what are your takeaways on the roughing this game?
0: Well, I mean, to put it quite frankly, and you saw it in the group chat too, I was upset. I was heated. It's probably the fan in me as well. I'm pretty biased as a Warriors fan. And um, maybe this take is as well, but I thought the refs were the worst performance of the night. I mean, and I'm going to call them out. Keynes Fitzgerald, James Williams, and I'm going to try to pronounce this name. Jeb, like, I don't know. Petraeus, right, Petratus, whatever his name is, y'all were terrible. You were an absolute joke, and it's part of an official's job to almost not be seen and try to not directly alter the outcome of the game with your kind of judgment calls. And in effect, they practically changed this entire scope of the game within the first half when they ejected Draymond Green. And look, I think that it was definitely a flagrant foul. But I don't think that... What I hate about this new flagrant foul rule is that it doesn't account for a lot of um, intent, I guess, within the replay. Because everything slowed down in a replay looks intentional, honestly. Like, and, you, and now they're just officiating flagrant fouls as any contact to the head and neck area, right? Yeah. And I don't think that's just fair because... It could honestly be accidental. And I think that, I don't think Green was trying to, you know, actually try to take him out like that. I don't think it was any intent of him to do that. And we all know Draymond's history, and I feel like that played a factor into why he got ejected in the first place. But I don't think that he was actually trying to do anything, you know, excessive to him. I think he was just trying to foul him so that he would go to the free throw line instead of actually making the shot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it warranted a flagrant two at all, and... In my, in my eyes, I had kind of shades of to the 2002 Lakers-Kings mm. series in terms of the referee. Well, I don't know if at it Team went Dahi. that far, but... I don't know if it went that far, but it got, I got kind of small hints of it. Okay, And I don't know what the refing is going to be like throughout this whole series. Um, I do kind of appreciate that uh, the refs, at least in the first round, what we saw with things like the Nets and the Celtics, which we'll get to at some point later on in this podcast, that they kind of let a lot of players just... Be more physical, and they didn't get very trigger happy with the whistle. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this particular series, these three refs in general, they just they just kind of went off on behalf of the Grizzlies. It felt like, and it just felt egregious, and it felt very blatant how biased uh, some of the calls were. Maybe it wasn't intentional, but. Uh, the obvious actions and the consequences definitely were. I mean, losing Draymond had a very immediate and outsized impact. Um, Jordan Jackson Jr. being able to go off, um, you know, if Draymond Green was on the floor, I don't think that JJJ would be uh, in foul trouble. And so, yeah, good point. I think that that, I think that's a very important factor that uh, we have to consider as well. I think the fact that John ja Morant and Jordan Jackson Jr. were able to put up the numbers they did. Not the only reason, obviously, but with Draymond not their quarterbacking the defense, um, Jaw I mean Jaw was gonna be hitting his paint shots and layups pretty much most of the time. He's just too good at it. But you know, Jaron Jackson Jr., um, it felt like there was no answer to him uh, at the perimeter today. Mm-hmm. Um, he just did a very good job just torching them from three. And I just think that it would have felt different if Draymond was on the floor. Yeah, and let me go back to this flagrant Foul rule again with the head and
0: neck unnecessary contact or ne- whatever it is, and we call that a flagrant one, right? An automatic, yeah. you know, flagrant for a head and neck hit. Well, I thought I saw you know Jordan Poole. He got hit in the head twice at least. I think I saw him once on a three-point shot. He got hit in the head clearly, and then on a layup, he was going up for a layup and they hit him in the head again. So. And they didn't even call a foul. They didn't call a foul. I didn't even on catch that, that man. Yeah.
1: That's that's wild. Usually you would call a contact. Yeah, right? you
0: call you call anything. If you're gonna call a, anything, call at least a foul. But if you're not gonna do anything, like like it should be a flagrant foul. If we're if we're officiating right and if that's exactly how we're gonna play it, because you it doesn't matter if it's intent apparently, because you know, Draymond didn't get played the same way. They said automatic, you know, flagrant for the head and neck, you know, contact. But if you're going to play it like that, then Jordan Poole should have gotten some shots as well. And, you know, again, you bring up the blocking foul. Dylan Brooks was indeed moving. And I don't understand how you could not overturn that after a challenge as well. It was ridiculous. And, like, another thing I saw was that they kept calling fouls on jump balls when the Warriors were diving for the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies had the ball on the floor and they had it. And then a warrior dived on top of them. Normally, you don't call anything in that instance except the jump ball. The refs, every time the Warriors dive for that ball, called a foul, like a loose ball foul on them. But then when the Warriors were on the floor later on, which eventually I think led to the jump ball that um, I think there was another jump ball before the first, uh, before the jump ball. There out was. Of yeah. Yeah. They didn't call a foul on that. Dude, I think Dylan Brooks was the one who dived on it too, which would have been his sixth foul. He should have already gotten his sixth foul on the Curry block, um, block and foul, but he didn't, and Steph Curry was called for his fifth. So why would the refs, you know, I don't understand that, going out of their way, honestly to not have Dylan Brooks, you know, leave this game when they were perfectly happy with Draymond being ejected in the first half. It was just a very, they very much altered the scope of this game. I don't know if I'm going to go as far as saying, you know, it was rigged at all, but they definitely altered the game in a negative way. You should never do that as an official. And I am surprised. I would be shocked if, you know, we saw anything from it because the NBA hardly ever disciplines its officials. And I don't think I even saw any footage of, you know, the calls that changed the game, right? When I looked at the NBA video, they didn't show, you know, Dylan Brooks clearly touching the ball out of bounds in their kind of highlight package, so I don't really know, you know, if it's ever going to be addressed, but it really should. Be. I think they're just
1: trying to go for the corporate erasure, man. Yeah. They just want to pretend like the refereeing doesn't exist. But not to put on my tinfoil hat on <laughs> and call conspiracies, but yeah, man, it's it was just kind of pitiful out there, the refereeing. I mean, we said it pretty much like every single minute now, but I think it bears repeating that if you see this continued level of intervention, in a negative light is this, then we have a very negative, you know. It affects the game, like
0: it affects how we perceive the game, right? Is it going to be, you know?
1: Yeah, where's the integrity for it, exactly. right? Like, let the players play, you know. Let everyone be able to enjoy the game. Yeah. Let the crowd get into it. Um, but side note, like, do you think that when the, when the crowd chanted, you know, eject Draymond, they were basically giving a chant like that near the end of the first? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to title a conspiracy theory over here, right? But do you think that the refs are hearing that noise in the background and, like, kind of processing it, like, very latently or subconsciously? Maybe there's some home court bias that could be happening, you know? Like, some places, like, the refs are more likely to make calls based on the audience. I don't know if there's a study that says that the home team gets more favorable calls in their own arena. Mm -hmm. But that, that could be a factor because, I mean, let's face it, that they were, they were coming out loud today, and they brought a lot of energy and a lot of fervor, uh, especially when the Clark and Draymond Green incident happened. Mm. I mean, they were raucous over there. Yeah, I mean,
0: I don't know about home court advantage like that, but I do believe that the refs, you know, can't help themselves to hear all this, and it's maybe a, maybe a subconscious, pers- like a public perspective Right, and they believe the general consensus would say, "Okay, eject Draymond," because not only are they being, you know, judged in the scope of the arena, they're being judged by millions of viewers watching across the world. This is on ABC. Yeah,
1: and it's hard not to hear the noise, right? Yeah. Every, a whole crowd, tens of thousands of people saying, "Eject Draymond." I mean, I'm sure being a ref is also a very hard job. I'm not trying to discount in or try to claim that refs are just being swayed by audience perception. I just want to underscore the point that it's very hard to be objective in an environment where, you know, everyone's just very polarized and trying to root for their own team. And it's a very hard job to get right. And, you know, obviously refs are going to get it wrong. You know, I think the biggest part of being a sports fan is just complaining about the refs. Yeah, <laughs> That's I don't, every single I, team. I hate
0: complaining about the refs. I really do. Like... I don't want to be one of those fans who just blames it on the refs. And we won that game, by the way. So, you know, it's not, it seems a little petty, or maybe it's a sore winner kind of thing to do, but you just have to call it out when you see it, because I just think that it was just a really poorly officiated game in general. And, you know, I think that the public perception of it so far from what I've seen is that, you know, even Damian Lillard and Trey Young were tweeting out like, hey, you can't do that in this kind of game. You know, it's the playoffs, first of all. Hard falls, I thought, you know, you get more physical in the playoffs. I thought that was usually the general perception of what goes down. But, you know, I guess not, because there was so many, you know, questionable calls that were being, you know, done. And when it affects the game in this level, you have to talk about it because you don't want it to keep on coming up. It shouldn't be an issue. And it shouldn't be deciding these games because these players have worked you know, their entire careers, their entire lives just to get to this moment. And we're going to be doing this kind of stuff right now. So, you know, Kane Fitzgerald, James Williams, Petratus, do
1: better as officials. Completely agree. So when it comes to the series, what do you think, given that we see a limited amount of intervention, if the refs don't become a key to the series, what do you think are the factors that will ultimately sway this matchup. Well, for starters, I want to first commend
0: the performance of Jordan Poole in this series so far. And honestly, right, we're, we're gonna clip the... that part.
1: <laughs> we're gonna clip that part. We're gonna put it on the highlights. In the playoffs so far. Okay.
0: Uh you know what, Jordan? I wanna say it right now. Um Back when your career first started, I basically called you a shot chucking disappointment and you were a complete draft bust. I thought you were, honestly, honestly, I thought you were the worst player in the NBA. Like, bar none. But you have continued... So you lied to yourself. <laughs> I thought you to I completely world. convinced myself. I was trying to convince others. But, you know, ever since then, he has completely shown to be just a phenomenal player and just a complete offensive weapon. And he's only continued to shine throughout these playoffs. You know, he should have honestly won Most Improved Player this year. And I don't think we win this game without Jordan Poole. So I would like to, you know, commend him for his efforts and performance. And from now on, I will not slander your name on this show.
1: What? Bro, this is like if Skip Bayless finally said LeBron James is the guy. Well, I'm not not Skip Bayless. That's the thing. That's the thing about me. No, no one wants to be Skip Bayless. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we both try. Like we try wrong. sometimes, but you know. Sometimes we, we've we been there before, mm-hmm. but no one. I don't think being Skip Bayless, besides maybe getting the money part for p- sh- peddling shoddy takes, <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to be Skip Bayless. Yeah. I mean, but I can admit. This yeah. is a historic moment, man, in the podcast. You saying that Jordan Poole is what we all knew he was <laughs> the whole time. He's a dynamic playmaker, he's a great scorer. He's the fastest player on the court uh, most of the time, and he has an endless array of moves and tricks and ways to set his team up and score at the basket. And he's really worked so hard on this game. The growth has been very evident. I've never really seen a player completely change his trajectory as much as Jordan Poole has. Like He's put in a lot of time and effort to become better at the highest level of play possible. And that too, you got to consider this. A lot of this growth happened during the pandemic too, mm-hmm. during the lockdown. Yep. So it, it it must have been very very hard to even get those reps in to get the practice required. It takes a lot of fortitude and strength. And Jordan was really the biggest reason why we won this game. Um, just from a pure numbers perspective, he near no triple double. He was you know passing like crazy, scoring at well, and. He, he played some solid defense too, you know? He gave some effort on the opposite end. It was a great all round game from him. And even though he's coming off from the bench, he's, he's easily one of the most important players on this team.
0: Yeah, and that's what I wanted to approach in this next uh, part, because Jordan was clearly coming off the bench in this game, but I felt like the Warriors were kind of slow to begin this game. I know they put Gary Payton into the starting lineup, and that was primarily to defend John Morant, but... It really, I think, kind of slowed them down. And I don't think that... um, You saw with the Timberwolves series and the Grizzlies series. Like The Timberwolves got off to these super fast starts and ultimately the Grizzlies kept coming back and winning those games. But the Grizzlies... I mean, the Timberwolves were able to kind of blitz the uh, Memphis Grizzlies early and then try to just maintain the lead throughout. What I thought we could have seen from the Warriors is that a little bit more urgency at the beginning and not having to make some of these you know the patented warrior comebacks that we're used to of course but I think that if they started earlier they had not you know they didn't try to defend John Morant first the primary game plan actually should be to attack John Morant because when we saw with Poole when he was coming into this uh, starting lineup this third quarter they were basically attacking Ja and they were trying to tire him out as well so that you know he's not going to be as explosive when he's going to race through uh, to the lane, right, to make those shots, so I would love to see Jordan Poole in the starting lineup next uh, game, and see if they could test them a little bit, and maybe blitz the Grizzlies earlier, just like with the Timberwolves, obviously, you know, you trade off some of that defense that Gary Payton's going to provide, but, you know, I think it's worth taking the risk, because, you know, you got to try something out, got to try something different because you can't get to that slow start again especially with the Memphis Grizzlies holding, you know, home court right now. Still, so, I mean, in this next game.
1: Yeah, definitely. I also think that Payton did a really, really good job especially around the end of the game mm-hmm. as part of that closing lineup. So, I do believe that most of Payton's value to this team when it comes to the series he will be the primary guy on Ja by all indications of what Kerr's trying to do with the series. And I, I think that's been a pretty solid plan. You know, payton has been playing very tenacious defense, as we all know he has been this whole season. And so, I, I would say that we did get off to a slower start. Um, mm-hmm. The Warriors, rather not we. But <laughs> the Warriors got up to a slow start. And, you know, when you have Peyton in the lineup, you do get that extra pressure on Ja, But jaw is still able to hit a lot of these acrobatic lips and get to the rim seemingly at will even near the end of the game you know despite the warrior's best effort to tire him out he still looked like he had a lot of energy even though it was pretty visibly clear that he was tired and so i think stopping jaw is the focal point of this series memphis is a team that likes to really take advantage of transition offense too their transition d is a little bit sloppy but if you've noticed, they really like to push the pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jaw lets to kick it out to Bain, and they do the hockey assist routine where you just find Melton or, uh, you know, even Brooks, if Brooks doesn't chuck <laughs> shots. Airballs. There's shot so many
0: airballs this game, honestly. Yeah, Bro-
1: yeah Brooks, is, Brooks is something else. I mean, he's just basically like a Pat Bev out there on defense, and his offense is even worse than Pat Bev's. Mm-hmm. But that's a different story completely. I think that Memphis is a team... That wants to just push the pace and tire the Warriors out. And they play very good defense too. Um, they force a lot of turnovers. And I think that's another key. Stop Memphis from being able to push the ball in transition. And the Warriors need to pick up the pace too. Because when they were able to do that. Memphis is kind of late to their rotations. They're a young team. They don't really know how to play defense without kind of getting set first. From what it appeared to be. So I think that's another key that the Warriors should try to take advantage of. Um, you know, the Warriors generated good movement uh, and they got good looks, especially near the end. But obviously, uh, you want to be able to get more of a scoring advantage early. And if you look at what the Timberwolves did in getting those leads, like you said, Matt, they just tried to attack Jaw and they just tried to, you know, score fast, but then they tired themselves out too.
0: Yeah, and two other keys to notice in this series rebounding memphis is the best rebounding team in the league warriors play small so they usually um it's more of a struggle to come up with rebounds it's crazy how with the four guard lineup that they rolled out at the end of the game that they were able to still get a lot of rebounds especially credit to andrew wiggins the only not guard on that lineup on the floor he had eight rebounds this game i think a lot of that um had to do with his ability. I think on that last play where Clay was able to hit that kind of three that basically ended this game or gave him the lead. I think there was a couple of offensive rebounds within that um last stretch that was able to get Clay that look later on. So you know credit to Andrew Wiggins, very underrated performance today. But
1: Yeah, like like Chris said, that whole small ball lineup doesn't work without Wiggins being able to hit crash the boards because when he sacrificed that much you know, size, you have to still be able to get the rebounds in order to get the second looks and attempts. So that's what Wiggins' role is. And him and Draymond, obviously Draymond couldn't have been a factor in this game because we all know why. But Wiggins had to kind of carry the shoulder load when it came to crashing the boards and getting back rebounds. And he did a really good job. And also Payton did a good job too, crashing the glass and uh, being finishing around the rim as well kind of playing the Bruce Brown role that he's kind of been famous for now. Yeah.
0: Wiggins had two offensive rebounds from what I checked from that last series, which is crazy. And Yeah,
1: and also, Matt, you have to consider this too. Mm-hmm. Steven Adams wasn't in the game, and he's one of the best rebound offensive rebounders in the league. So that's going to be a problem going forward.
0: I'm sure Draymond's ready to uh, see him again, and Steven Adams is too on the playoff series.
1: There will be some uh, natural shooting motions, Ah, yes, but that will be remain to be seen. <laughs> yeah. And
0: one other thing here is, you know, don't foul Memphis. And I know it's hard sometimes, especially with the refs that we were ha- we had today, but, you know, I thought it was just a Minnesota thing because Minnesota commits the most fouls in the league per game. But the Warriors actually commit the third most fouls uh this season and they get the second least calls to no surprise. But that means that you're probably going to see a free throws disparity between you guys. So you got to close that gap. You try not to foul Ja as much when he's driving down the lane. And that's what Memphis is really. They are primarily, they kind of drive and they sometimes dish it out to Desmond Bain or Dylan Brooks, their shooters. But you saw that the Warriors were daring Ja Morant to shoot the ball and Jaron Jackson to shoot the ball. And you want that to happen. They just made their shots, credit to them. But hopefully the law of averages will state that they're not gonna be able to make those shots later on in the series. They're gonna be a bit more, you know, back to the mean. But you basically have to dare them to shoot, and I think that helped rally their comeback because they were taking a lot more jump shots. I think at the end of the um, quarter, basically, and that's what allowed the Warriors to gain basically a ten point lead later on. So you gotta just dare them to shoot. Don't let them drive. And good job so far on Desmond Bain because I did not see him at all, honestly, in this game, and he's primarily the best shooter, so you gotta just, you know, don't foul, keep them out of the
1: paint, dare them to shoot. I think that's pretty much the summary of how it should be, I mean, limiting Desmond Bain is very critical, I mean, he was shooting nearly like 50% on threes to close out the Minnesota series, it was pretty night and day, he started off that series slow, and then he was a flamethrower by the end of it, so... That's going to be another factor too. Uh, honestly, just give Dylan Brooks all the shots in the <laughs> world. He'll probably be able to build affordable housing in the Bay Area by the time it's all said and done. It's so a Tony Allen treatment? Yes, sir. I mean, run it back from 2015. All right. Sounds good to me. All right. So, predictions for this series. I'm going to say this. I think the Groceries are, I mean, especially after this game, they are a team to be feared. I think that they have a potential dynasty in their hands, Jaws on an MVP trajectory. You know, Jeremy Jackson Jr. is the perfect second slash third piece, and Desmond Bain's been incredible too. But I still gotta favor the deeper team, the more experienced team, Uh, as our our best player, the worst best player said they got championship DNA, and I just value the intangible factors. I mean, you saw Curry being able to direct traffic and be kind of the calming, steady hand to close out that game, and. He can be that difference maker mentally in this series. Steph is always going to be a factor. And, and then also, this was all done with no Draymond. And Steph was still able to make the key defensive highlight in the game by blocking who I believe was Brandon, Brandon Clark. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was, ja. But ja. It was, it was at, ja. It was Ja, okay. Yeah, so he was still able to do that. And you, once you, if you have the best player, right, I, I don't really think that... It's going to be uh, two. There's no backs against the wall with the Warriors, right? So I think that they're just a better team at this point in time, frankly.
0: Yeah, I'm not as complimentary on Memphis. I don't think they're a dynasty. I don't even like you got to win one first. And what I've always been annoyed about with the Grizzlies so far, you know, give them their flowers. They had a great season, but don't act like you've been here before because you haven't. Last time you were, you were beat by us. This is a different era, obviously. But that was seven... Crazy how it's seven years ago, and it's the same core that's going to be trying to go for their fourth championship now. They hadn't even won a championship. They were just like them back then. But then they proved themselves. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then they like, the
1: Warriors are, are a true dynasty in every meaning of the word. Mm-hmm. When I say Memphis is a potential... Di- like, I see they're a dynasty in the making, but obviously, we'd all thought that OKC could have been that, one, that great dynasty, too. Things don't obviously go as intended, or... What the track, track read at that moment says, the feature, we don't have any idea what it holds, but they do have a very good team over there, and they made the Warriors fight very hard this game. Obviously, there are other accentuating factors behind that too, but credit to them, they played very well. Yeah,
0: but you know you gotta prove it, you gotta prove it first, and I think that the Warriors just have enough experience. I thought that the Grizzlies were just a little bit, um, they showed their youth, I guess or a lack of ability to close, I guess, in the playoffs. Well, they did against the Timberwolves, but I thought that they just let that series get a little away from them. And so I don't know if they've pretty much composed themselves for this series against probably the most experienced team in the playoffs in the past decade. And I'm not going to bet against my own team. Come on now. So I'm going to say Warriors in six just to be, you know, cautious. But I honestly think that if they can beat them without Draymond, with all these Warriors in foul trouble, in their own home, with Jaw and Jaron Jackson Jr. shooting like that, I think that it could be, you know, and I hope it's going to be a quicker series than that. But I still got the Warriors, no matter what.
1: Yeah, we got to ride and die with the Warriors with this as fans, but even just from a pure objective take, the Warriors are the better team, um, just top-down. Dub Nation. And- and even though that Ja was shooting very well to begin the game, I still think that the way they're starting him to shoot is the right strategy, and Memphis is a team that is young, which is their greatest asset in some ways, but also their greatest weakness because they still don't have all of the composure and the diversity of play styles that you would like to see from a top team, in the sense that you know you, you have players that are very good at what they do, but... They don't necessarily have um, auxiliary or you know complementary things about their game. Like I mean, jog ja can drive to the rim and he's able to get the ball out and do hockey assists and all of that. But you know, if you can't shoot as a guard, that's that. that does it's not pretend issue. to a very good you know playoff outing because when teams start to shoot, you just kind of got to do it right. So that's that's just one example. I could kind of go throughout the whole roster and point out things that they haven't really developed yet but that's player development they're definitely ahead of their um their timeline in terms of where they are as an organization but the warriors are definitely ready to compete now i mean you, you got a championship core right there you got jordan Poole and i think that bodes well
0: all right we're gonna go on to the Bucks celtics game the bucks one in five to chicago and the Celtics won in four against Brooklyn. More on that later. But the Bucks take Game One, 101-89. Giannis had a triple double: 24 points, 13 rebounds, 12 assists, and they did all of this in the TD Garden without Chris Middleton, noted Celtics killer. And they practically, you know, they were down. I heard in the first quarter, but they pretty much, you know, dominated the rest of this game. Um, so. No Middleton, and I thought that was actually going to be a lot harder for the Bucks, but apparently, you know, they won game one. So, is the lack of Chris Middleton going to affect the Bucks' ability to win this series?
1: I think it's still well, only because Chris Middleton is that important of a player to the Bucks. And this isn't to say that the Bucks are completely done for without him, but not having Chris Middleton. Especially with the history he has against the Celtics, too. Like, in 2018, he was just completely torturing them. Um, even though they did, did end up losing that series, I believe. But, the, even then, you know, Middleton is a very important player to the Bucks. Obviously, he's their number two guy. And there will be difficulties that uh, come with that. You know, you had people like... I think Grayson Allen had a really big first half. Bobby Portis was huge, too. And... Brooke Lopez was also very clutch as well, and so do you expect those guys to show up 9 in and 9 out? Uh, maybe maybe Bobby Portis, because he's been very good consistently for the Bucks this whole season, but I can't tell you that Grayson Allen's going to be shooting 3 for 6 from 3 again, you know, so th- that those are things to consider, you know, Tatum had a pretty solid game, I think that Joe and Brown was in a shooting funk the whole game, and you gotta, you want to see more from Marcus Smart and Derek White too. So I think that the series is still very much alive. Um, obviously, we can't make a strong premonition or bold take after one game, but I expect this to be a very hard-fought series. But you know, Giannis felt very casual what he did, like just putting up that triple double. You know, they even with Robert Williams over there, I feel like he could still get to the rim at will. Even though they kind of limited him to 9 for of 25, he still was able to get his points, kind of do what he needed to do on the court. And that's very hard to stop too. And I think that it's going to be very competitive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the Celtics honestly did a pretty good job on Giannis in the sense that they kind of just built a wall around him just like all the way back in 2019. That was the plan to contain Giannis. But Giannis is just a different animal. Now he can you know, just driving kick out a lot more. He's a lot more cognizant of the people around him. That's why he had twelve assists today. And, you know, the Celtics need to shoot better, right? You cannot win any game scoring eighty-nine points in the this NBA, right? So, you know, they gotta do a much better job in shooting. And that's also a credit to Milwaukee's defense. They came into this whole series and we talked about how Boston's defense is completely elite. Well, Milwaukee just, you know, absolutely stifled the Celtics. There was not; a, they didn't make a single mid-range shot this entire game. But I think that the shooting will get better, and I think that eventually, you know, what they're going to have to do is they're just going to have to stop Giannis. I mean, that's just that's just it, and it's easy to do without Chris Middleton. But Giannis is basically, honestly, he I think he's the best player right now in the NBA as it is. And especially in these playoffs, he's the most dangerous man right now. And he's coming for that second title. So if you're not going to be able to stop Giannis, that is basically the game. That's basically the series. And I thought I was going to have the Celtics come out and win this series. And the main point of that was because I thought Chris Middleton would be out. So I thought that the Celtics would be able to find a way to win. But now I'm kind of leaning towards the Bucks just because of this victory. I'm a little bit, you know, <laughs> I guess I'm a little bit of a flip-flopper when it comes to that. But I did flip-flop to the Celtics in our last episode. So, I think...
1: Yeah, that's true, though. Yeah. But the thing with the Nets that are, that we have to consider, too, mm-hmm. um, kind of to your point, the Nets were, obviously, they couldn't defend. They were all turnstiles on D, Yeah. But they were also very undersized, too. Um, but the Bucks are definitely not. I mean, Brooke Lopez was very active on defense the whole game. Mm-hmm. Drew Holliday, Javon Carter, obviously Giannis, Grayson Allen. They're all very ferocious defenders. And they made Jason Tatum's life very difficult and Brown's life too. Uh, they forced him into some very difficult shots and contests on all three levels. Not just from late, the paint, but also at the perimeter and at that mid-range too. Which is where Tatum and Brown get a lot of their bread and butter points. So... This is gonna be a much harder series. Even though Chris Middleton, even if Chris Middleton isn't there, I think it's not gonna be as easy to, to generate offense for the Celtics. Obviously, because you know they aren't playing the Nets anymore. So Tatum, Tatum will have to do some hard carrying. But even though he was hitting some very hard shots at the beginning of the first half, that can only take you so far against the defense as as the Bucks. So we'll see how it goes. I think I'm gonna still go with the Bucks. Because of like what you said, Matt. Giannis is still very impactful. Even though he shot nine for twenty-five, he still found a way to make a huge, uh, incalculable impact on this game. And you know that that's very hard to stop. You can't really guard the Greek Freak like that. So I think that's probably the main factor for why I say the Bucks. Because you know even though Middleton's out, Giannis is still Giannis, and. I have to agree with you I think he might just be the best player in the NBA right now
0: I'm going to say Bucks in 7 It could very easily be Celtics in 7 right now But I just If if Giannis is able to do this It's crazy I think, you know Man, I just have so much the, that's the crazy I have part. so much respect Giannis is actually Honestly, he's my favorite player Non-Warrior uh, player in the NBA He's just that guy He's that dude Yeah a lot of respect for him. Let's go on to the other two semifinal matchups. They haven't played yet, but they will kick off on uh this Monday night. The Heat and Sixers. This is actually a much more competitive series before we heard the news yesterday or maybe the day before that Joel Embiid not only sustained an injury to his pinky finger during the series against the Toronto Raptors, he fractured his orbital bone. In Game 6 versus Toronto, within the closing minutes of the game, he's out at least for the first two games of the series. He was initially ruled out indefinitely, but now there's some hope and optimism that he might play for Game 3. So, you know, they're already kind of, they don't have home court advantage. And now they're down, they're scoring leader, and kind of the scoring leader for the entire NBA, a potential MVP candidate in Joel Embiid. How much of this falls on Doc Rivers leaving him out there in the final stretch of that game? Because it was a blowout, as we can recall.
1: I think that was the origin of the entry, correct?
0: Yes. He was um, in late in the game, and apparently I think Pascal Siakam kind of elbowed him, I'd say, in the face. Something like that. Um, I don't know if it was dirty at all. I don't think it was. But, you know... Apparently, you know, Embiid felt it, and he says, he, I think he said he felt like his face was broken after that, and it turns out, you know, it was. So, you know, what I'm concerned about is why was he in the game at all? It was a blowout. And, you know, I understand why, you know, you want to close out these Raptors, right? Because you already literally failed to close them out in the first, um, in games four and five. And now, if you lost game six, you know, it's an even matchup. But at the same time, you got to protect your guy out there, especially when he has an injury already. He already has an existing injury that's already made it harder for him to play and perform at his MVP caliber level. So, you know, i got to question Doc Rivers for his Yeah, though. and
1: and a beat with his injury history too, you've got to be protective of your best players. That was a big issue with why uh, when Doncic got his uh, calf strain, I believe, and he missed the first two games of that Jazz Series, People were blaming Jason Kidd because he left them out. It was playing him high minutes, even though they locked up their seed and position. So it, I, people you know criticize load management all the time. But you got to be strategic about these things down the line come the playoffs. You want to protect your players. You want to give your team the best chance to win. And if Doc really just let him be on the floor, then I think that's just a complete failure on his part. And I think a lot of people would agree by kind of having this Joel Embiid injury with the fractured orbital bone, along with the existing pinky finger injuries. Um, uh, I just think that the series, it, it kind of precludes a very strong chance of them to be able to be competitive. What do you think? So do you think that this is time for James
0: Harden to shine? Because that's what he's going to need to do right now.
1: Listen, I here's the thing with James Harden, right? even though he has had prolific scoring seasons and all of that in the regular season, not not to kind of be a prisoner of the narrative, but he hasn't really completely dominated a playoff series. And oh, that's not a prisoner showed. of the
0: moment thing. That's literally his narrative, honestly.
1: Yeah, which, which doesn't bode well, because it, James Harden, especially given his recent injury issues and him looking like he's lost a step, at least physically, and that to him kind of taking more of a distributor role with the Sixers, not trying to be a scoring threat, because, he, I mean, he did seed a lot to Embiid and Maxi. That was kind of part of the drill, but now Harden has to step up, and I don't know if he is in that condition to be able to do so. He's not really looked like 2019 Harden for a minute now, and it still kind of remains to be seen whether we can get to that level again with James Harden and there's there's been some animosity brewing up with Jimmy Butler and James Harden and all of that but also the Heat plays suffocating defense still will play zone and Harden if he can't hit that step back three you'll have to try to drive in and even then I think that Bam and Tucker they'll do, they'll do a good job of meeting him at the rim you know Tucker knows Harden pretty well because they were that team they were that uh, team they were that team. They were very good. I'll, I'll have to hand it to them. They were very good on the Rockets together, but I think Tucker knows a few tricks that Harden might not be able to know and take advantage of.
0: The Heat are the best team defensively against guards, point guards, this season. We saw what they did to Trey Young, and Trey Young is that dude when it comes to the playoffs. But he only had like eight points in the first game, and I think he struggled basically to hit twenty points in most of the games um, against the heat um you know I don't think that James Harden is going to be able to carry the load I think that he's going to have to I think he's going to try to put it on himself as the primary uh scorer and the star now that Joel Embiid is out and we want to make a correction it's a thumb injury not a pinky injury that's even worse at this point so you know I don't think that Harden has what it takes to be able to come up against the miami heat i think the heat have a game plan for him and i don't think that you know <laughs> it's just hard for me to imagine that doc rivers is going to be able to out coach spolstra especially when he's down his best player um because i just don't know where the offense is going to come from right it's just going to be basically harden it's going to be maxi they're going to need tobias Harris to step it up and basically prove the value of his gigantic contract but I just don't see it happening. And, you know, I think the Heat are well-prepared. They're well-coached defensively. And Jimmy Butler's been pretty much on a scoring tear, and he's passing a lot more in the playoffs. And Kyle Lowry's out for Game 1. Butler will play, even though he didn't play Game 5. And I just don't think that the Sixers have what it takes. And I think once they're down one yeah. 2 They're going to try to force Embiid out there, but I don't think that it's going to be enough at that point. And I think the Heat,
1: you know, might win in 4 or 5. I think so, too. If you have no Embiid, then the series is basically wraps, and even Maxi has been very good this postseason. I think everyone's kind of been seeing the elevation he's taken with this game. He's not going to be the one that single-handedly carries the Sixers over the Heat. The Heat are just a better team, just top-down roster-wise. It will take a miracle for Doc to be able to beat this Heat team, the one that's been at the top of the East for essentially what it feels like the whole season and has been very well coached and is, frankly, one of, if not the deepest teams in the league. So we'll see what happens, but I think the Heat will probably drop a game to the Sixers. I think the Sixers will just win one. Maybe James Harden has a good vintage performance and Max, he just goes off. But as far as four games goes in a seven-game series, I don't think that the Sixers are able to pull that together and beat out. Yep, absolutely.
0: All right. Last matchup that we should be talking about here, the Phoenix Suns and the Dallas Mavericks, the one seed versus the four seed. The Suns, one in six to the New Orleans Pelicans, and are expert analysis, analyst uh g who couldn't make it tonight he was sick um got better man yep he's probably a little sick because of the, the uh, draft that the sealers had but you know we'll get to that in a later episode um either way he wanted to hit us to say for him that his boy chris paul cp3 had a perfect performance in game six it was a vintage chris paul performance and he literally did go perfect. I think he got 14 for 14 field goals so to close out the Pelicans. So, you know, good for him. We'll give him his props for uh, this one first-round game against the eighth-seeded Pelicans. But whatever. Either way, you know, they now face the Mavericks, who similarly won in six to the Utah da- Jazz. Same game. Um, same time, actually. And Luka Doncic is back. He averaged, honestly, 29 points per game in the Utah series in the three games that he played. Jalen Brunson's been on a tear, 27.8 points per game.
1: So what can the Mavericks do to upset the Suns in this series? That's a good question. I think that what the Mavs will need to do is just outshoot the Suns. And that starts with their shooters, throwing Finney-Smith, Kleba, Reggie Bullock, and even Dinwiddie I think that when it comes to the Mavericks they are a team that loves to shoot the three and that's what they completely took advantage of uh with in that Utah Jazz series and you know the Suns are a very good defensive team obviously you know you have Mikhail Bridges who puts his opposing uh player into jail every (laughs) night one-on-one he's been crazy and Cameron Johnson's been outstanding and so and Payne's been very good too Cameron Payne The Suns are just a very solid team from top down. But Dallas' strengths are being able to play good defense. Finally, a Mavericks team plays good defense. And then obviously shooting the ball well. And Luka Doncic, I, I don't really know yet who hypothetically would be defending Doncic in that series. Would it be Bridges, you think? I
0: imagine it would be. But I think that they could also put Bridges on uh, Brunson and put Jay Crowder on Donsick because he's a little bit bigger. But I don't know if Crowder could keep up with him, as well as the fact that Crowder's been in foul trouble a lot, honestly. So I think that they might they might make it a team thing to uh, guard Donsick. But you got to cover both of them because that backcourt is lethal right now. Brunson has found his stroke. He's really heating up in these playoffs.
1: Yeah, he's been scoring on all three levels at a very good clip, and he's been very great, obviously. You know, that 40 piece he put against the Jazz, but also, it's the Jazz. We'll get <laughs> to them later on in this episode, but, I mean, not to discredit Branson at all. He's been completely outstanding. And when it comes to the Suns as well, right? You know, like you said, Jake Crowder has been a very good defender, but he has been getting in a lot of foul trouble, and Luka will not make his life easy when it comes to that. So I think that discipline that Jay Crowder and whoever defends Luka will have to exhibit will be a very significant part in that series too. And another factor that's kind of gone under the radar is DeAndre Aiden. He's been really good at shooting outside the paint now. And I don't think that gets talked about enough, but he's been having a really good playoff series and he could definitely punish uh, the bigs on Dallas yeah, and I think that
0: one of the biggest things, we should talk a little bit about the Pelicans' Suns series because, first of all, credit to the Pelicans. They were the, I want to say, 9 for 10 seed, and they had to play both playing games and to get into this thing, and they went up against the team with the best record in the NBA and were tied 2-2 in the series after Game 4. And credit to the Pelicans and their young rookies, you know, Jose Alvarado, um herbert jones and i think there's one more i want to say murphy trey murphy yes but those guys were incredible they like (laughs) they have jose alvarado's nickname is i think gta which is pretty accurate he pretty much antagonized chris paul throughout the entire um series and he made eight second violations relevant again so he was just a monster i think that the pelicans Are very nice heading into next year, especially if they bring back Zion. If they get him back, because you got Ingram, you got McCollum, and Jonas Valanciunas, who is cleaning up on the boards. You know, he. I think that was the biggest reason why the Pelicans were able to keep up with the Suns, because the Pelicans were rebounding at an outstanding pace and was able to get so many, you know, second chance opportunities and kind of stop the Suns' possessions at kind of one, you know, shot. So,
1: oh, yeah. I believe they were the best rebounding team in the league this season. Yeah.
0: So I think the Suns really struggled with that, as well as the kind of defensive prowess of Herb Jones and um, Jose Alvarado. So the, what the Mavericks need to do is they need to punish that and kind of be able to rebound the ball. But I find it hard for them to do that with just two bigs. They got Maxi Kleber, they got Dwight Powell, and they got Bobbin. But, you know, <laughs> Bobon doesn't play. Really It's
1: essentially like their victory cigar. Yeah,
0: he doesn't really play that much. And I don't think that we see Powell and Kleber's more of a he kind of stays out on the perimeter, honestly. So what the Suns need to do is they just need to punish that front court. I think DeAndre 18's gonna be the key to this. And you know, I think that the Suns just have so many ways to beat you, and I don't think that the Mavericks are able to kind of beat the firepower that Phoenix has or defend it as well as they do. So, I think that this Mavericks team is still a little bit of a work in progress. But I think that you can never bet against Luka when he's performing in the playoffs. But I'm just going to say that I think the Suns will probably win in five.
1: I'm going to say Suns in six. I think that Dallas will be able to put together some good games where they just shoot the lights out. They have really capable scorers, and snipers will be on the arc. And, you know, Josh Green's there too. And, you know, I don't know if I mentioned Bertans already, but he's also another key part of that tree, that scoring barrage from beyond the arc. But, like you said, it's going to be hard for the, the Mavs to have a true answer for Aiden. Kleba likes to play around their perimeter, as you said. And, you know, Powell, Powell does get into a lot of foul trouble, too. So, that's kind of been the knock against him. And... I think the Suns are just a better team, too. And not to just kind of repeat and make everything based on talent, but just on paper, the Suns have had a better record uh, than the Mavericks. They, I think they've won more. and I think they won their head-to-head this series. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, like, they're the games they played in the regular season. And the Suns are just a very well-coached team. And even though kids are doing a good job, like you said, Matt, they aren't exactly the most complete team or they haven't reached like the iteration of their roster where they're true contenders, unlike the Suns at this stage.
0: I think that their kid's done a wonderful job, and they were, they've been on a great stretch ever since January of success, and that got them to the fourth seed. They were almost, honestly, the third seed before Golden State just won that last game. It took the last game to decide that. But, you know, however a season so far... And they were able to still close out the Jazz in six despite Luka being out for the first couple games. So credit to them. But I think that the Suns are very dangerous and really want to get back to the finals this season. So we'll see. All right. Now, my favorite part of this uh, NBA playoff recap. We do this every year, honestly, because we love, honestly, trashing teams more than, you know, praising them at this point.
1: We love celebrating people who make it to the top and reach the pinnacles and achievements and all of that. But yes. let's be real. It's more fun to always just trash on teams yeah. that try to be at that stage, but they just got exposed. Oh, we're massive teams. We have, two teams. We have two teams just like that <laughs> this season. And they've kind of been those pretenders time in and time out for the past yep. two to three years now.
0: Yeah, let's start off with the Brooklyn Nets. They have had another disappointing season. They were bouncing the first round. Uh, They didn't even win a playoff game. They were swept by the Celtics. They had to win a play-in game to even make it to this point. They beat the Cavaliers as a seventh seed. And this was not how it was supposed to go. When Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving signed three years ago, they were supposed to be this new dynamic duo in Brooklyn. But year one was pretty much scuffed because Kevin Durant had the Achilles injury. Kyrie played in and out. He got hurt. And I don't think he even uh, played in the series that they had against the celtics i want to say and they lost in that one and then year two it was great why they brought in james harden as well to complete their new big three the most lethal offensive trio in the nba and they were the second seed and they were up 2-0 against the bucks and they weren't even close until James Harden hurt him, his hamstring, I want to say. Kyrie it Irvin, was a hamstring. Yeah, Kyrie Irving got hurt in Game 4, and then it went all the way to 7, and a Kevin Durant toe on the line practically, you know, cost him that series, right?
1: I think it was an all-time series looking back at it, though. It really was. It really was.
0: It's a shame, too, because, you know, who knows with the injuries, who knows with the, uh, if Kevin Durant wore smaller shoe size what would have happened because the Bucks eventually won the uh, championship that year so you no, know, what happens now basically this year Kyrie Irving kind of was absent for half the year because of his uh, beliefs and you know anti-vaxxed stance he couldn't play home games and he didn't even play up until I want to say December then he got COVID and then he only played away games. And then Durant got hurt for a long stretch, and James Harden wanted out because of Kyrie Irving. So then they traded him for Ben Simmons, who never played. So, and then, you know, we're up to this point where he they get swept by the Celtics in the first round. So, this is a major disappointment for any Brooklyn Nets fan. If you were to tell me three years from now, you know, when Kyrie and KD initially signed, that basically you're questioning everything that you've done as a team right you're questioning you know why did we sign Kyrie which is actually you know what every team's fan has actually contemplated so far whenever Kyrie's been on their team and you got a guy who basically isn't playing at all and then you got Kevin Durant but even Kevin Durant couldn't do it all on his own and he didn't do it all on his own against the Celtics. He actually had one of the worst playoff performances I've ever seen from Kevin Durant. So,
1: what do we make of all of this? Because this is atrocious right now. Man, if I were a Nets fan, I'd just be pulling out the Duce, be playing Marvin's Room for 10 hours straight. (laughs) Just sit in a dark room, get some red lights on, and just think about life and kind of just contemplate, where did it all go wrong? And, you know, like you said, last year was what could have been Kevin Durant I don't know if you he probably could have put up a very good fight against the Suns by solo carrying that team but you know that's neither here nor there that's just a complete hypothetical that will never come true because of what happened in that series you know the Bucks slowed him down just enough just barely and that's because of that toe uh with the shoe size and everything yeah but You know, it it all comes down to Kyrie taking a a very principled stand. You know, he really stood up for what he believed in, and he really fought for those who had no voice. You know, and that's just so admirable. Nah, dude, screw that. Like, dude, that he's completely screwed up their season, man. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. This, this all kind of just falls on him, to be completely honest. I mean, he kind of killed the whole momentum of that season. He fueled further discord and animosity between the James Harden and the Kevin Durant camps and they had to release like a leak a purported leak later to ESPN uh, people from KD's camp that James, that he was worried about uh, I think James Harden losing a step or something which I do think is true but you know it's James Harden he gave up a significant amount of assets and capital to even acquire him so and for the purpose of winning a championship, too, in Brooklyn. So, it just kind of felt like things just reached a breaking point a very long time ago in the season. And the Nets have just kind of been floundering. You know, you still have virtuoso performances by Kyrie and KD throughout the rest of the second half. And even Kyrie in Game 1 was very sensational, too. I mean, he was doing everything out there. But, you know, they got... They had a very clear and telegraphed weakness, and the Celtics just came at them hard and, you know, very furiously, and that's just what killed them at the end. They they were a team that was built to the exact specifications and whims of what Kyrie and KD wanted, and that was their Achilles heel in the end, their kind of egos and them feeling like they were above it all, uh, falling under a team structure even in Kyrie's post game uh post series oh, yeah. uh, season reflection Talk about interview that. yeah he said that he wanted he would still be managing the team with Kevin Durant and that it was kind of up to him to decide where the direction of the organization goes and to be fair that's kind of saying the quiet part out loud you know star players do have a significant voice when it comes to personnel decisions or at least they're a significant factor. I mean, just look at LeBron James, right? But for him to overtly say that, you know, him and KD will just shape the organization as equal partners with Sean Marks and Joe Sy, uh, the GM and the president or governor now of the Brooklyn Nets, respectively, that's crazy. And that's outlandish to say out loud. And not just that, too, but the Nets have basically bent backwards to meet every single need that KD and Kyrie had. I think there was like a, a report a season ago that said that they were paying like for rent for like their girlfriends or something like that. But they do like a lot of things that are not on the books to cater to their stars, and I think that kind of goes beyond or the player owner agreement or contract. Yeah, and, and I want to. I just up think it wasn't fair
0: because I remember seeing a report too. I think there was a whole like feature on that where the Nets were basically accommodating. Kyrie, katie and harden this was last year like never before like they were basically like yeah they were doing all these you know different stuff to appease these star players because they wanted to make it work out and then the article basically speculated at the end will it work out is this the new kind of way teams are going to have to organize themselves in terms of their culture in order to kind of get these star players to come them to play to their best performances and their peak abilities well, so far not good I think that the Nets struggle from a culture's perspective primarily because they're accommodating, they're so accommodating towards these star players, but that's not an identity right, you can't just say okay, we're the team with KD and
1: Kyrie right, no also they kind of have no culture too, they just they moved to Brooklyn relatively recently and their whole shtick at the beginning was they were the team that Jay-Z had a minority stake in because he talked about Barclays Center a lot. He helped get it built. And then when he sold the stake, a lot of buzz just kind of died. And then they tried to revitalize that by getting Darren Williams. And then they had the disastrous KG and uh, Paul Pierce trade where they gave up all of those high first round picks and, and eventually became you know Tatum and Brown and whatnot. And... You know, they had that one stretch in between where they were kind of a very lovable underdog playoff team with Karis Levert, uh, D-Lo, D-Lo, yeah. yeah, Jared Allen. But yeah, this is to say that they really just never had a cohesive identity this whole time. And now, you know, with the player empowerment movement being in full swing, really, um, they just went to 11 with it and they just did all of these things for Harden, uh, KD, and Kyrie. Yeah, and the thing is that,
0: you know, you can't just win on talent. And I feel like coaching is just completely disrespected in the NBA compared to even more compared to everywhere else, right? Like, for some reason, we leave coaching by the wayside, especially when it comes to these super teams because they keep getting rid of their coaches, right? We just saw LeBron fire another coach from the Lakers uh, in Frank Vogel a couple weeks ago. And now the Nets, Steve Nash's job is in danger at the very least, because, or at least there's been speculation regarding Steve Nash's future with the Nets. Steve Nash was actually the coach that Kyrie and KD picked to replace Kenny Atkinson, who is with the Warriors, by the way, who has already reached further than they have in this year alone. So, he know, was a
1: great coach, too. Yeah. They overperformed with that squad when Atkinson was in the lead by a long shot.
0: Exactly. And look at these super teams that actually were successful here. Right, you got the Lakers, and they had you know, they had a couple of super teams, but they had Shaq and Kobe. Who managed those egos? Phil Jackson, right? Who managed they
1: didn't really manage the egos, Shaq and Kobe? Well, but they were able to manage that they were able to, they were able to get off, them to yeah. a 3
0: peat but also with the heat, right? The heat they got Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosch, and LeBron James. And remember, LeBron wanted Eric Spolster fired. at the beginning yeah and pat riley stayed steadfast and he said no guess what two championships right and he was able to manage all those egos he's still able to manage the heat to this day to a one seed right you got steve Kerr in golden state when kevin durant came over coaching matters right you can't just say okay we're gonna have all this talented players you need a little bit of help. You need some coaching behind it or else you're never going to succeed. You're never going to be able to build a culture here. Like the words, Yeah, totally. But look at what the
1: Timberwolves did and and what uh, Brucey said. You know, Chris Finch and Taylor Jenkins, they both were significant pillars behind wider culture around two orgs that had been floundering for a bit and kind of lost their way. Finally looked revitalized. They built a young identity and they built a strong culture that can go forward and develop. And the coaching is a very big part of that.
0: Yeah, and I wonder how much coaching for Brooklyn had to do with Emeo Udoka, right? Because he was the assistant coach for Brooklyn last year, goes to Boston, extremely successful, that beats the Nets, sweeps him, actually. So I wonder how much of the game planning came from Udoka, especially in this series. I think he knows Brooklyn very well. And, you know, I'm not going to completely blame Steve Nash on that. Uh, this I think that it's actually really Katie and Kyrie's refusal honestly to be coached at this point I don't think they're really willing to be coached at this level and let's go on to another thing here because this is honestly a big piece to the Brooklyn puzzle as well Ben Simmons he literally you know he literally didn't play this year you know Minnesota protesters spent more time on the court than Ben Simmons did in this postseason like it's ridiculous like where is he i see him i see him on the sidelines yeah on the court (laughs) exactly but like ben simmons he shows up on the bench with the flashiest outfit you've ever seen but it's just like he doesn't play basketball anymore honestly and he reminds me of like everything i hear from ben simmons in terms of rumors and stuff and in terms of just the attitude he kind of displays is just reminds me of the guy who like He just wants all the glamour and the fame of being an NBA star, but he just doesn't want to put in the work because we see him every offseason and he posts these hype videos of him. And I feel like I'm repeating myself here. I feel like I said this exact same thing a year ago when we were talking about when Philly was bounced to this Hawks and we were talking about how Ben Simmons' effort level was. And I feel like it's the exact same thing because literally nothing has changed. The last game he's played was that same Game 7 against the Hawks, where he passed out of a wide-open dunk over Trey Young. So, it's just astounding to me, you know, that he still hasn't played at this point. And it just feels like he's never going to play at this point because
1: I don't know what exactly is going on there. I, and everyone else in the industry, the industry being not just people that play basketball professionally, but also like the... I guess, the encroaching or uh, secondary sports media. Everyone has been kind of up in arms about this and has been really confused as to what's going on with Ben Simmons, you know. is Does he truly have, um, you know, demons that he's facing that have prevented him from stepping on the court? And not to discount that at all, mental health is an extremely serious issue. And, you know, Ben Simmons has had personal issues with his family that you can you guys can go look up if, you, if you're curious and also, not just that, but, you know, him kind of being thrown under the bus with Doc Rivers and Embiid. And it doesn't feel good to be kind of pointed at as a post-mortem and a post-game press. So, on some level, I think that everyone should empathize with Simmons, at least on that front, right? Because you can't control huge family issues that have rocked their family. And also, even though you we're kind of the long pole, and we're flunky the reason why... The team fell apart near the end, or at least was the majority of the reason. It doesn't feel good when your teammates in public and your coach in public will just come out and say you just didn't show up. Like you don't want to, you want to be able to frame it as constructive criticism, but I don't think that's the vibe that was given at the very end. And you know, it's natural. People were very angry about the series. The Sixers should have beat the Hawks. Um, they were just the better team and everyone kind of had them winning, but it doesn't feel good. But we don't know how much of the issues with Ben Simmons is kind of real or if it's kind of manufactured by him and his agent or it's just kind of a cop out excuse for him to not just step on the court and just reap revolve the benefits of being an NBA player without actually having to commit to the grind and you know, working on getting better as a player, which is what you should be doing. You know, Ben Simmons has been in the league long enough to the point where he should develop. He should have developed a summons of a jump shot. And, you know, Brett Brown was being very complimentary, kind of to the point where he was being subservient to the point where he was just saying, you know, I really just want Ben Simmons to shoot threes. He wasn't forcing it or putting a quota, but he was trying to be really nice and kind about it as much as he could. And Ben Simmons just didn't heed those calls. So uh, this is to kind of say, you know, I don't doubt that there are issues that Ben Simmons is going through that are really serious and do deserve time and, and you know, care because, you know, once your professional career is over, it, it doesn't matter what he, we say or what outside people say, you should, you know, care about your own mental health more than anything else. But, you know, how is, does that scenario and do those words really apply? To the situation is Ben Simmons using mental health as a crutch, that I'm not sure about. I don't want to make a direct claim about whether he's doing that or not because that just doesn't feel like it's my place to do so. But it the question still remains open, which I which doesn't really say things that are too good. Yeah, and I wonder that as well because
0: we heard right before Game Three that Ben Simmons was ramping up for a return Game 4. Then the Nets lose. They go down 0-3. And then the next day, Katie and Kyrie also don't show up to practice after Game 3, which is just lovely uh, leadership right there. But at the same time, then Ben Simmons basically says, oh, I'm not feeling well. My back hurts. I had a setback. I can't go Game 4, right? And it's just a little bit, you know, just odd to me, I guess. And what I, you know, don't understand is that... And I know everyone deals with, you know, mental health in their own ways. And I don't want to criticize that at all. But I think that, you know, with Ben Simmons... Eventually, you have to go back on the court. And you've got to prove yourself. Because until you prove the haters wrong... Until you prove the critics wrong about all of this... This is not going to go away anytime soon. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's fair at all but I'm just saying that that's just what's going to happen because you've got people who have been wondering where have you been and where like if you've been ducking basically and been using mental health as a crutch to basically not have to go out there and prove yourself and you can't keep doing this you also can't keep collecting paychecks by just sitting on the bench with these outfits of yours and just being able to say okay yeah I'm supporting the team in a way but at the same time I'm not going to do anything to go out on the court and gonna help them out there so I don't, honestly don't even know if he's ever going to be on the court as a net in this future because it does not look good and the nets have been completely accommodating towards him but don't you think that they wanted him to play because I don't think they just traded away James Harden for you know someone on the bench look they got Seth Curry they got Andre Drummond but that's really it because Ben Simmons has not been there and I don't think he made as much of an impact to this team as they wanted him to
1: yeah i think the other thing too is that when you haven't really played any games during the regular season to suddenly ramp up and have your first game back be in the playoffs is just too nerve-wracking and i think that that's kind of fair but also i mean the same thing happened with jamal murray too um he's still recovering from that acl tear, but. People were criticizing him, like Nuggets some Nuggets fans were saying that, you know, he was not he didn't want to show up on the court. But, you know, Jamal Murray had been open by talking about how there were some mental roadblocks to come with the recovery from an ACL injury. Obviously these are different sets of circumstances, but this is to kind of say that your first game back being a playoff game and that too with mental struggles and that kind of being it's a really hard context switch to play nba basketball in a crowd with a huge crowd right so th- that pressure kind of makes sense but ideally you would want to have ben simmons play sometime during the regular season right but then this goes back to the question of was his back even okay or was it not okay right it all just comes back to that you know is that injury um as severe because there were some clips of Ben Simmons asking people to record him dunking, and he looked oh, fine lovely. at that. Yeah, yeah. So, what's what's the actual narrative here that we're going for? You know, what's what's the back injury? Um, are we being completely honest about that? And I, I don't want to uh, put that in question too much because it could it totally could have just flared up at a random time. But the main takeaway here should be that the Nets should be really concerned. About whether Ben Simmons will be able to play, uh, next season because, uh, the report says that the back spasms before this game four were triggered by um, mental stress that occurs, and if that is a challenge, uh, that's going to be ongoing. Uh, you know, you you worry about people should be able to recover on their own timelines. You know, everyone deserves dignity and should be they they're entitled to be able to take your own step at a time when it comes to having mental fully, full mental recoveries, right? But, you know, what does that mean for the Nets specifically, per se, right? You know, are they willing to be accommodating to, for Ben Simmons for a direct, at least, like, you know, half of next season, for example? Those are questions that start coming up in your mind when you think about this whole saga. Look, also, the fact is that, and Charles Barkley actually said this on Inside
0: the NBA, but you got players playing through injuries in these playoffs. Already, Giannis had a hyperextended knee last year. Clint Capella, hyperextended knee, he came back in the series, even though it looked like he was done. Scotty Barnes, ankle injury, he also came back. You know, you see these players come back from, you know, injuries and, you know, they try to grit it out. They're clearly not okay, right? Stephen Curry, he got hurt in many of those playoff runs with ankle injuries and people kept, you know, dragging him saying oh he lost so he's gonna fake an injury again right and he still came back and he still tried to do it kevin durant ben simmons teammate now came back from a calf injury way too early now that we know and tore his achilles in game five of the 2019 finals i'm not saying that this is you know what we need to expect from players but when you go out there when you're a player and you're going out there you're gritting it out through injuries you do gain the respect of your teammates. You gain the respect of the fans because you're putting your body on the line. You're putting everything on the line in order to win the game for the playoffs. And I think that certain amount of respect from those players, you know, it emanates in that culture. It emanates in that locker room. So when you're Ben Simmons and you're not going to do anything and you're already going to rule yourself out because of your back spasms, and again, it could be terrible. It could be debilitating at that point and I understand that but I do think that there is an effect on your teammates when you go and do that and especially when again Kyrie and KD they bailed on practice after game 3 like they all basically said oh we're done we're not gonna have a chance we're gonna get I didn't even know that have practice. (laughs) they didn't have practice that day and they just left they basically
1: threw in the towel
0: yeah so like that's the kind of culture that you're getting. Yeah, with dude, the like Mets, like right? think
1: about if Ben Simmons said for example, Hey, let's not give up. At least be a vocal leader of the team. Uh try to be the one that rallies, gives like some youthful energy, kind of being the young person in a veteran, uh, laden squad and says not to give up or at least try to be there. You know, at least that's still a positive contribution to the culture. You know, being a teammate just isn't about what you do on the court, but also providing off court Intangibles and guidance, and just being a positive reinforcement to your team culture and future. Yeah, and he, he could have he could do those things too, you know. And I think that those are factors in which Ben Simmons can definitely contribute. But t- him giving the look that where he just dresses up in you know Dior and Macamiri and, and Prada and Montclair, you yeah. know, that's, that's that's not exactly what you want to be doing as a team member. You want you don't want to be looking like you're not part of the team. At least like look like you're. You know, part of the Nets, you know, not trying to be in the runway of like Paris or like New York or something for Fashion Week.
0: Yeah, honestly, I don't know what he was doing there because he's more like he's going to gain criticism for this. Like, again, I'm not saying any of this is fair in the least. But this is literally oh, totally, what the yes, world man. is. This is how it's gonna be. Because it's a
1: resort oriented world. If, People look at judge you by yeah. what you've done. If no not one, exactly who you
0: are. If no one in your camp is telling you this might be a bad idea to wear all these fancy ass outfits and just sit right next to Andre Drummond and basically look like you bought a like courtside ticket to the game, right? You know you gotta get someone new. You can't keep surrounding yourself with Yes Men there because that was not a good move, especially when you're gonna back out the next game, right? Like. Again, and Kyrie, in the post game presser in Game Four, Kyrie said, "Oh, you know, we just didn't have enough chemistry on the court. You know, there's nothing that could have been done to prevent that this season. You know, we just didn't. We just kept changing personnel. We couldn't really like get into a gel. We couldn't, you know, get into a chemistry." I like, wonder bro, Kyrie, what you're the you could you have should done. Be the chemistry, dude. <laughs> I wonder what you could have done in order to you know get a little bit more on court chemistry with those guys. It's crazy, like nothing could have been done, huh?
1: Hmm. Like maybe playing games. Yeah,
0: I mean, think about you know the role players on this team. What kind of message does this send? You know, when you're, you know, when your star player Kyrie is gonna do this, Ben Simmons is dressing up in a new outfit every day, right? Like, and they're and then neither of them are trying to come out on the court apparently. So like
1: At one point, I swear to God, I think Bruce Brown was the only person that was trying. He was killing it. He was killing the game. And, and so was Blake Griffin, too. I mean, they, they were the only ones that played with heart, you know, not to go and use kind of a boomer phrase or anything, but they were the only ones that really tried and looked like they wanted to really win. And to be fair, the Net, not to just completely make this uh, criticism of the Nets, because the Celtics played an amazing series. Ime Udoka had a great game plan to. You know, neutralize KD and Kyrie, but uh, to, on the other side of it, it just looked like the Nets didn't respond well with their backs against the wall and they weren't resilient were enough of a squad. And you know, having that grit is super important for being a championship team. You know, how many times the Warriors and the Spurs and you know, the old Lakers and uh, the Heat haven't uh, pushed against the wall and were able to come out in New Year's and different seasons, like. It takes a lot of Brazilian to be able to do so, and the Nets do have those lingering questions around them that, to be frank, are still deserved at this point. I just don't think that there's any kind of, you know, culture there. I just
0: don't see them as a championship-caliber team. I think that they have all the talent in the world, but. It's like they've They have the heard, talent like, for sure to be a like, championship team. Yeah. They, it's like they heard that their entire lives and now they're just not going to do anything about it. It's like they already thought that they've won the championship in their heads just because everyone's been calling them the favorites. So, you know, I just don't see it unless something changes in the next couple of like in this off season. But what are you going to do? You basically need to get someone new in there or you're going to have to blow it all up, right? Like KD is a legend. He's great but he can't do it all on his own right he can't even lead this entire team to rally behind something right now because Kyrie's off on his own world Ben's off on his own world right like Harden left like left so something's got to change and I don't think that they're going to be able to do it because I think that everyone's too far up their own heads basically in order to kind of be willing to kind of come together and do something different and maybe, maybe who knows, maybe the, they are talented enough and they are going to win, you know, the next NBA Finals, right? But right now, it just does not look good for the Brooklyn Nets.
1: Couldn't agree more. Yeah.
0: All right, let's move on to this last topic. A uh, Favorite punching bag of the Sports Council podcast, the Utah Jazz. Uh, they lost again in the first round. This is not new in the Donovan Mitchell era, the farthest they've ever gotten. Was last year when they were the first seed and they lost to six against the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard. Embarrassing. Embarrassing, yes. And they've, in the five years in the Mitchell era, they've made the semifinals twice and they lost both of them. And then the other three were in the first round, including this year they lost. And uh, one of which was the uh, bubble playoffs where they lost to the nuggets when they had a three to one lead they lost to them in seven so you know this has been quite a story for a while now and we heard even in last season that they were like even in this season that mitchell and gobert's relationship's been strained honestly it's been strained ever since covid when rudy Gobert, probably even before yeah.
1: yeah but i think that covid the whole issue surrounding that Mm-hmm. with what Gobert's actions were with the microphones and touching teammates' locker room stuff, yeah. it gave Donovan Mitchell's camp kind of a good excuse or justification to come clean that him and Gobert aren't really on the best terms.
0: Yeah, and we've made a big deal about Mitchell only passing, like averaging two passes to Gobert, not assist passes Corundous. per game. So, it's, you know, I feel like they keep running it back, and they can't Get any better than maybe the first round i think their ceiling honestly was last year when they were the first seed and they had a deep team and they still lost in six to the clippers so you know is it time to actually just blow it
1: all up yeah yeah no question <laughs> i i think everyone in the utah jazz organization is already thinking about what their next steps are going to be because they ran it back with several versions of this team they brought in the mike conley uh, they, they even traded away Joe Ingles and they try to get Rudy Gay. Um, that, those were two different moves, by the way. But still, they, they've tried to put together auxiliary pieces on the sideline to kind of provide some depth, but that hasn't worked out too well for this team. They've still kind of been stagnant under the same identity, right? Which is that they are kind of reliant on the Mitchell and Conley ISOs. And then they kind of switch between that and then just trying to score with Boyan and Clarkson either just hitting threes or just Clarkson doing some iso moves. And then they just have the ball off to Gobert sometimes as a law finisher. And yeah, they're just not a really unique team at this point. And the calling card with Utah was also their great defense, right? But Gobert can only do so much in the rim. He always has to second guess. And they always kind of dare him to either put a guard on him and then just leave him going to the perimeter in which that case like the rest of the offense completely uh, collapses onto the paint when Gobert is out and Gobert obviously can't be in two places at the same time because he's either in the perimeter or he's just locking down the paint and so the onus then should be on Mitchell and Boyan Bogdanovic and calling to be good defenders but They're so, so bad. (laughs) And nothing has changed at all. And they just keep getting worse every single year. Like, Cleveland got so many open looks throughout the whole Dallas series. It was actually insane. Like, it looked like they were in shooting practice at one point. Or they were just, like, shooting on, like, guns and, like, a target range. Like, they just had that many open looks. And Utah knew it. And they didn't really do anything. And they just rolled over flat. It's a disappointment. I think that this team's done for. Their peak has been reached for sure. Uh, Mitchell and Gobert are not on the best terms. And I just think that they aren't going to make it work out. I think that both sides are kind of done with each other. And they just need to blow it up completely. There's there's just no saving hope with this, with this core. I find it paradoxical that, you know, Gobert is
0: just in a phenomenal defensive player. And I do agree, actually, that he is really good defensively. But, you know... You can easily game plan against him because, you know, you just try to bring him out on the perimeter. Like Maxi Kleber, you know, was able to get all those wide open shots because Gobert's not going to come out of the paint. So you switch, you know, you have Kleber on Gobert, just have Kleber go out on the perimeter. And if not, you can go inside because you can just blow by those Utah perimeter defenders. Like Utah is just bad defensively against, um, you know, other than Gobert. And I will give credit to Gobert that I didn't give him last year. You know, he is a good defensive player. He does alter, you know, the shots in the paint. And I think he is getting a little bit better offensively as a lob finisher. But you cannot be paying a guy $200 million a in a contract and not have him be any kind of, um, like, a threat offensively. Like, of course, he can finish a lob. Like any seven, footer, any seven foot can, player like, should be able that. to do that. Like, hopefully, look, JaVel McGee can finish a lob, right? Like, what are you doing, right? You're basically paying him for defense at this point, and he is still flawed defensively because you can't you can bring him out on the paint and he, you can score on him, right? Jalen Brunson put him on skates, right? So the whole time, <laughs> very good, very good. But at the same time, like Utah is just completely flawed roster wise and yes they keep adding these auxiliary pieces and ultimately it's just not working out at this point so you're gonna have to do something your cap's trapped so what are you gonna do get rid of the biggest fish here Rudy Gobert you're gonna have to ship him out somewhere and I don't think you can win it's like the Westbrook problem you can't win with a guy with that big of a cap hit and that many deficiencies um in your in your play right so you can't do that So you got to get rid of Gobert at this point. Um, And you probably have to appease Mitchell at this point, even though I don't think that he is like, he can't carry a team single-handedly at this point because we've seen what he's done when he's leading the team. And I don't think he's enough at this point. And plus, he's also to blame for a lot of the Utah Jazz's defensive deficiencies. It's not like he's the only one who hasn't been getting blown by on the perimeter, right? So, you know, he's a
1: six-foot shooting guard, right? So it's kind of hard for him to do a lot there, right? He was drafted to be a defensive presence because that was his calling card coming out of Louisville, actually. But it's it's really interesting how he became a very gifted offensive player in the NBA, and he seemingly regressed and didn't put as much effort on defense. I mean, it is hard to do both things at a high level two Mm -hmm. ways, but you know, Mitchell wasn't supposed to be this horrendous defensively coming out of college. And yeah. I just think that's a really important note. But it's actually really interesting you say that Mitchell should be the one who stays and Gobert leaves because I was a- I actually might have to disagree with that, Matt. Ooh, and okay. the only reason why is that Mitchell's skills are kind of a dime a dozen when it comes to finding people who can play at least seventy five percent or eighty percent at the level that um Mitchell plays at, you know. Mm-hmm. He just he's a very good ISO scoring guard and you know, what's the NBA really good at these days? Besides, you know, having some amazing unicorn big men, like the best players in the league now. They're really mostly just known for in the NBA. Like, a lot of the greatest, a lot of really good talented players are just really good guards. There's been a glut of guards in this league that can score at a high level. Because to make it in a guard in the league now, you have to be really, really skilled. You know, ever since 2014, 2015, the skill cap in the league and the amount of moves that are required in order to make it and stay relevant to teams has increased a lot. You see a lot of really high-level scorers um, now that would have been All-Stars 20 years ago. But now there is borderline All-Stars, for example, or just, you know, even solid bench players. So I think mental skills, this is still all that mental skills are replaceable. But I think Go is still a solid piece you can put around defensively. You just need to have good wing defenders. Like, imagine a defense that is shepherded by Gobert and someone like Mikhail Bridges, right? I mean, you stop them not just at the primary perimeter, but also if they ever cross Bridges or another elite defender on the wings, or like Drew Holiday, for example, you have to face Gobert, and life becomes hell. So, I think that Utah can still do a really good thing around Gobert because his skill set is so rare, and he... even though he can't play on the perimeter, you know, wings and guards should be primarily playing defense on the perimeter, not exactly a seven-foot center.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I do agree with you on that point. I don't know if it's as easy to find, you know, a, a scoring guard as you think. Like maybe in terms of just scoring, pure scoring, no defense. Yeah, you could probably find that, right? C. G. McCollum was able to be acquired in a trade, and he's practically like that at that point for all intents and
1: purposes yeah he he definitely is yeah
0: so you know maybe it is easier to find that but I don't think that you can keep my biggest issue with Gobert is just that cap hit because I don't think you can conceivably pay a player that much and expect to be able to surround him with other big pieces because those guys are not going to come cheap right like the Don like a Donovan Mitchell kind of scorer who gives you like 25 points per game you know they're there they're out there but you are going to have to pay them Like, you know, Jordan Poole is a restricted free agent, right, this year. So, like, let's say Utah gives him a contract offer, right? But they're going to have to pay him a lot in order to do that, right? So, like, I just don't think that, especially if you're going to pay a player that much in Gobert, you need some kind of ability offensively. Because if you're going to pay, like, a lot to an offensive star, right, then you're going to have to basically, like, what happens if he's double-teamed? What happens if you they game plan you out, right? Gobert's going to have to step up because we don't have any other playmakers. We, can't, we literally can't afford any other playmakers in order to do that, right? Like, you got Clarkson, you got Bogdanovich, but they're not, you know, they're not stars. They don't always rise up when the moment calls them. We literally saw that in game six. Conley and Bogdanovich both did not do what they needed to do in order to win the like sold the game, yeah, yeah, basically. Oh, man. I got PTSD from that, like, when the Jazz were driving down the court in the final seconds of the game, it reminded me a little bit of when the, Donovan, the bubble. yeah, Donovan Mitchell yeah. was driving down. Yeah, like, I got
1: the same vibes too. Yeah. It was crazy, man. So I
0: knew, like, like, right then and there, I was like, they're gonna blow this. Like, it doesn't matter who's on the ball, it's just gonna happen. And oh my god, that Bogdanovich shot. Ooh. That's a Not hard way good. to lose. Yeah,
1: he was on fire that series, but you know I just don't. That, that was a great look by Snyder, though. Really good play no, yeah. calling to get it open. That was that was amazing. That was that was Chef's kiss, man. Like that was that was really beautifully drawn up. But you, you just have to live with that, you know. Like Boyan is a great shooter. You know he was great this series, but
0: yeah. And let's talk about Snyder real quick because there's been some rumors, some Laker rumors that. They are trying to court him to join the Los Angeles Lakers to fulfill their head coaching vacancy. So is this finally time for Quinn Snyder to jump a
1: ship and try to get out of there before all this blows up? I don't think that Snyder and LA would particularly jive, only because Snyder has a reputation of being a very tough-nosed, hard-headed coach. And I don't know if that's something that LeBron and AD would necessarily want to uh, leading the team and providing like coaching decisions and all of that i think they'd want someone that's more player friendly and receptive to the star's input although i will say that mitchell and snyder have had a really good relationship and mitchell does credit snyder with a lot of growth so maybe maybe that take isn't maybe that take is kind of outlandish but for people as established as you know lebron and ad are I don't know if they would want a coach like Snyder. But I will say that Quinn Snyder is the exceptional coach. He is for sure one of the best coaches in the league. And it would be a very strong win if the Lakers were to get him. Although, I think he does fit better on a team that, at least he is proven for a team that doesn't have immediate championship aspirations. And instead is just kind of leading a young up-and-coming squad. At least that's what his track record seems to indicate. But I, I think he would be. Uh, I think he might just leave the Jazz. I think that they're, they they've kind of run out of patience when it comes to him. There's going to be some organizational shakeup um, with the Jazz. They have acquired new ownership recently, actually. So yep, join uh, we. these are all. <laughs> <laughs> These are all holdouts from the previous regime. Yeah, Dwayne Wade is also part of the ownership. I think he's a minority owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, he he and Mitchell are also close, but that's another thing too. Is there any bias with that, well, Dwayne Wade wanting Mitchell around? That could be another thing too to oh, consider. Man. But when it comes to the Jazz, I think that they've ran their course with this current lineup. The only made the only move they really made this off season was just acquiring Rudy Gay, and they chose to run it back with the same team, even though Terrence Mann basically provided the blueprint of how to beat <laughs> the, the Jazz right. Expose them at the perimeter, expose them for the terrible perimeter defenders they are. They were they were all in the top of the defensive metrics last year and regular season, like they were like number one offensively and defensively, and you know. I didn't really watch a lot of jazz games last year, so I really thought, oh, they must just much. They must have just been really good defensively, on the perimeter. But I think Gobert did a lot of heavy lifting when it came to that defense. Yeah,
0: hot take. Hopefully, this is just the hail mary shot in the dark. I bet Quinn Snyder replaces Popovich in San Antonio. That's what I. I believe. could
1: see that happening. I think Snyder was was under the Popovich tree. Or yep, no, he was. Okay, cool. Yeah, he was under he was under Duke's coaching tree because Quint Snyder played at Duke. So he learned from both Coach K and Pop. Those are two great coaches to be under, and I think he would fit right in with uh, the Spurs if that were to be the, so the case. They have a young team too, and I'm sure he could do great things over there. Yeah, I really hope
0: that's the case, honestly, um, because I think Quinn Snyder actually deserves more, and I think that the San Antonio Spurs would actually be really good for him do um but you know we'll see that takes us to the end of our show this is a pretty long one honestly but it's good to always talk basketball with you
1: vivek likewise matt likewise great episode as always
0: yep and you can listen to this episode and various other ones that we have on the sports council podcast on spotify itunes and apple um, amazon music Um, You can also follow us on Twitter, at Bay Council, to stay up to date on the latest and greatest of our sports takes. We've got a lot of them. Some of them are biased, some of them are not. But we are somewhat entertaining, to say the least. We try. We try. We try. There's much more than we could say about Kyrie sometimes. All right. That's going to do it for the end of our show. Anything else you want to add?
1: Make sure to like and subscribe for more.
0: Yeah. Oh, go Warriors.